on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And today, the former owner of Tasmania's $100 million plus farm talks about the sale. So I think it's a matter of you have to operate from the ground up, you know, focused on interacting and supporting local communities, the fire services, all of those um, interactions and not think probably like a corporate that's controlled from elsewhere, really think like a ground up business. And we had a phenomenal team on the ground that did that. And calls for wool processing to be done in Australia. The scouring process actually mitigates the risk of some um, emergency animal diseases like foot and mouth disease. So instantly if we had capacity to process more, then our risk exposure would reduce in a proportionate manner. Is scouring wool locally rather than having it done overseas. That story coming up. And in just a moment, we'll hear from the Australian head of the company, which has sold Tasmania's highest priced farm. G'day, Tony, with you on this midweek Wednesday, which does mean Richard Bailey and the livestock markets coming up in the second half of the show. And as spud growers find things tough here in Tasmania because of weather conditions and high input costs, it's also affecting potato farmers overseas. More of that story coming up for you shortly. As always, we'll check the weather and invite you to be part of the program via the text line 0438 936, that number, 0438 936. You might like to comment on our first story about overseas-owned companies investing in agriculture. And the company, which has just sold a North Tasmanian farm for over $100 million, says there are no other Tasmanian farms on their radar at the moment. Bex Wilson is the Sydney-based Managing Director of Proterra Investment Partners, which managed Vaucluse at Canara until last week when the property was passed on to an undisclosed buyer for an undisclosed sum. I spoke to Bex Wilson a short time ago to find out more about the lengthy process of selling a Tasmanian farm for over $100 million. You know, these businesses are quite complex, so it takes uh, it takes the bidders involved, uh, you know, a while to get their uh, get their arms around the, the operations and really understand what we've done down there. But we're tremendously excited. The result was uh, was a fantastic one for our investors, and and really was a tribute to the the team on the ground and the work um, that they have put in since we commenced that aggregation in 2015. Yeah, just give us a brief outline of your company, Proterra. Uh, Proterra is a uh, is a, a manager in the in the private equity space focused on natural resources globally, and we we have uh, been in, invested in Australia in agriculture since two thousand and nine, uh, when we bought into a business called BFB, and since then we've deployed uh, over a billion dollars out here um, across the agriculture space. Um, across a number of investment vehicles for for investors globally, uh, and yeah, we've just been in the last couple of years bringing a couple of those uh, those acquisitions to exit, uh, which really cements our track record at, out here in in acquiring and aggregating and operating um, those kind of in, investments uh, for you know offshore investors and and domestic. What was the relationship with Cargill? We were formed um, within Cargill. All the, the leadership of Proterra have um, considerable years of their careers been at Cargill, including myself, just under 15 years. Um, and effectively, I think it gives us a unique perspective on the agriculture space because we understand soft commodity markets and we do focus on that uh, within these investments. So securing good pricing in Tasmania specifically, we had some very strong relationships with local off-takers and, and really it under 
underpinned a, a strong cereal foundation of the business that comes from our trading of soft commodities within the Cargill banner for years. So Cargill's been a, a strong partner. We actually bought the business out from them in 2016, but they continue to be a strong relationship of ours and, and continued supporter of the funds. Yeah, and, and uh, there was a number of assets that we bought at that time, Tony. Okay, and Vaucluse was one of them. That's correct. Well, we we assumed continued to to manage the farm the funds um, that owned those assets, and I was involved in in those uh, you know well before that buyout occurred. And so, it, effectively, from the investor's standpoint, it was seamless. Um, the the difference was we uh, we were a standalone entity that's employee owned uh, versus being part of of the Cargill. Now the farm has changed somewhat since then, since your ownership um, acquisitions and um, what other stuff did you do there? We 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 undertook a major investment program um, to improve the productivity of the farm and that was mainly by adding significant water storages and and also um, ensuring we had you know strong rotations. Um, occurring across the farm to maximise productivity. We also constructed a grain handling facility there, so a grain storage facility, I should say. Um, and so it really enabled us to to feed into the growing, the seafood, or oh, sorry, the fish food production um, market, which has been growing significantly there. And, and these companies were very happy to partner with us because they like nothing better than using Tasmanian uh, grown wheat, et cetera, to feed into those fish markets. And that was uh, that were strong partnerships, and and we really underpinned the business uh, with that commitment to the to the grain production in Tasmania, which I think has has been certainly secondary in the past to some of the other crops that you can grow, poppies and potatoes, and we we grew all of those as well. But we really uh, we underpinned our, our grain production uh, with the storage facility and the investment in that, and that really proved out in the prices that we were able to extract over time because we could store it and deliver it as our customers needed. Bexwell. And Managing Director of Proterra Investment Partners. Our guest on the country are talking about the sale of the iconic Tasmanian farm Vaucluse at Canara. Uh, Bex, when we talk in Australia about selling off the farm to overseas interests, there's usually a negative reaction. How do you see it? Well, you know, this is it's been an interesting one, Tony, for us because we've now participated in, you know, three exits. Um, uh, BFB, which was uh, off to an institutional foreign investor, Coronella, which was earlier this year, and I, you know, I don't know if you remember at the time, but that we ended up splitting up that uh, operating entity into individual farms, and we sold it back into Australian hands. And that was, uh, if I recall correctly, 29 transactions back to Australians uh, or back to the neighbours, effectively, of those farms in Victoria. And we we had uh, we had both lo- uh, local and in, and international interests um, in Vaucluse. What I would say is that the money that we have spent improving this property has benefited Tasmania and and Australia. And I saw that across all of these exits and including the assets that we continue to build today. So our LPs are, are, are mostly offshore today and you know they have they have invested significant amounts of money in improving the productivity of these operating vehicles and when it comes to market I wouldn't say that it's you know they're going straight to the offshore owners certainly in the Coronella instance uh, the benefit of that transaction was being able to carve it up and uh, and 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 play it back into Australian hands so I I don't think it should be viewed as negative I think it should be viewed as very positive if that capital is utilized to improve productivity it improves all the neighbors prices as well 
well. I can tell you there's lots of happy neighbours down at Canara at the moment, I'm sure, that are very pleased uh, with the result that we were able to, you know, to extract from the development um, using foreigners' money. And during the sale process, uh, there were more than 200 genuine inquiries, I believe. Uh, a lot of them are local. Were there any that, that got close uh, there was a number of syndicates that were a mix um, of various locals, and and absolutely, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty tightly tight, tightly held race actually. So ultimately, you know, it's not just about um, you know, it's not just about having the best price at the end of the day. I mean, we we had strong interest in in conducting the transaction with someone that was sort of like minded and and was keen to take our team on and and continue things across. As you know, obviously they'll change the direction of the bus, but but it was uh, you know the entity that bought it is were, were very very good to deal with. So are you allowed to tell us anything about the entity that bought it? I can't, unfortunately, no. Are they overseas? I'll have to let them tell you that, Tony. Okay. Do you think that's a, a fair enough um, uh, reason, though, that um, you know you, you sign these uh, non-disclosure things uh, during the process? Do you think um, that's fair when, um, in, like public companies that JBS, for example, had to, um, when they were taking over Hewan, it was all up front, all, um, all public, all, everyone knew what was going on? Well, I think at the end of the day, I think it would be wonderful to have public vehicles uh, managing. I would love to to be managing agricultural assets in public vehicles, but historically that just hasn't been a proven, uh, you know, method of of extracting value and being able to do what you need to do and coping with the cycles that happen in agriculture. So, I think for as long as you know, as long as we we can't really see that level of support in the public markets, you know, these entities will remain private and and their dealings will remain private. But you're confident they'll do. The job that you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, well, I think they, they love the asset and that's that's all you need as a base to, to uh, you know, invest in it and continue to, to operate it in, in the way they want to. I mean, every I always think of these people as every one of these operators and Proterra is no different as, you know, we have a strategy. We were very focused on developing the grain business there. You know, that was kind of unusual for Tasmania, you know, I'm sure the new operators will probably have a different slant and, and so maybe they'll be less focused on that and they'll be more focused on, I don't know, the livestock or whatever, I don't know. And uh, that's for them to decide what they think is, is the best use of that land and the investment that we've put in there and, and you know, which is wishing them the best of luck. I, I think it'll it's a great asset and we're going to miss it. We really are. It's a, It was always a pleasure to visit and we're very proud of what we created down there. Are there other farms in the state on your company's radar? Not currently, no. I mean, I really like it as an investment destination and um, we keep an eye on all those, these markets pretty closely. Um, but we're not really in the, in, in the building at this stage. We're hoping, you know, to head towards that, uh, once we've got, once we've got these, uh, these deals wrapped up. Okay. And, um, the price, the final price, I suppose that's, that's not available for publication. No, unfortunately, I can't let you in on that one either, even if it's just us girls, Tony. <laughs> All right, Bex, uh, thanks for your time. And just finally, how would you describe Tasmania as a place uh, to invest for financial institutions? Uh, I found it, uh, I, we found it very, very good. I mean, you need a local team and lo- to be part of the local community down there. And, you know, we did, we did a number of things that I think helped our standing in that community. We 
we uh, renovated the pro- the house on the property, which of course we didn't have to do, and it became sort of an iconic events destination um, during our period of tenure. And I think that was well respected. We actually we had an opening that I was there with a lot of the local farmers that were, were sort of really interested in what we'd done. So I think it's a matter of you have to operate from the ground up. You know, focused on interacting and supporting local communities, the the fire services, all of those um, interactions, and not think probably like a corporate that's controlled from elsewhere, really think like a ground-up business. And we had a phenomenal team on the ground that did that. So we loved Tasmania as an investment destination and highly recommend it um, to anyone that's considering it. And it's a great place to holiday as well. That's Bex Wilson, Managing Director of Proterra Investment Partners, the company which sold the Canara property Vaucluse to, as you heard, an undisclosed buyer for an amount undisclosed as well, but it's somewhere north of $100 million. Well, it's not just Tasmania's potato industry that's having supply issues this season. Over in North America and Europe, drought and the high cost of growing the crop has also reduced their production, which means there's less frozen fries available to export. Larissa Smith spoke to Rabobank analyst Pia Piggott about some of the market challenges. Over in the US and in Europe, potato production has been um, on the decline. We've had the pandemic, inflation and drought, they've all caused low supply and high prices. So at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a sudden drop in demand for uh, the frozen French fries used in food service and there was contract forfeitures and this caused the prices um, to decline at least in the US by around 12%. Um, That um, along with the droughts, um, caused acreage competition in the US and in, in the EU as well, where Uh, the high prices of other agricultural commodities meant that farmers were going away from growing uh, potatoes. So there was a decline in uh, the acreage towards um, growing potatoes. And then the dry and the drought conditions also led to decreased yields. So there's been um, lower production because of that. And because um, over the pandemic, the, you know, the demand in the food service um, recovered quickly. Uh, that led to, you know, a spike in demand as well, and that's led to these high prices. Where are things up to in the season uh, in the US and in Europe? We're planting yeah. in uh, Australia at the moment. What, what's happening over there? Yeah, so in the US, um, the harvest is wrapping up right now. We've seen that the supply has been a little bit lower uh, or the production has been a little bit lower year on year, um, but prices are quite high at the high historical highs we've seen um, in October, roughly around 33% higher year on year. And this is expected to remain elevated, but possibly soften um, with the new um, supply coming with the new crop. And with the harvest that's just happened, what has production been like in terms of tons compared to previous years? Uh, was it was it a good year? Uh, yeah. So it, overall production was lower year on year, estimating around two to three percent reduction. But uh, last year was also a low year. So over the past two years, there's been um, yeah a decline in production. So has America had to import potatoes to cover a possible shortfall? Yeah, so they have been importing um, potatoes from places like Canada. So what's the story in the UK and Europe? 
Yes, yeah, so Europe is also going through a drought. So that's also putting pressure on yields. Uh, we're also seeing there's quite a high inflationary pressure for growers, uh, high fertilizer prices. And there's also a lot of uh, acreage competition because uh, other crops that uh, such as wheat, um, the prices of them have quite increased. So there's that acreage competition that we're dealing with, which is um, decreasing the you know total acreage um, available for growing potatoes in the EU. And that's led to um, higher prices in the EU as well. So what's the scenario for the key potato exporters? These are the, the countries that would export processed potatoes that would be, you know, French fries or, or, or frozen chips. How much production is floating around for some of those countries? So our top four importers are the Netherlands, Belgium, the US and New Zealand. And the US and uh, the European countries have had the drought conditions and lower production. So there is going to be um, higher prices to export. We've seen in the US um, shipping point prices as of October are around 33% higher. Um, so that's going to you know, lead to higher prices in Australia and in their other exporting countries. As Pia Pickett's an associate analyst with Rabobank painting a picture of what's happening globally with potato production. Where are the chips? Well, sticking with spuds and coming back to Tasmania, three consecutive years of La Nina have played havoc with Tassie's potato supply. You've probably noticed those empty shelves at the supermarkets. It's more important than ever to get on top of those diseases that can devastate crops. And a new research project might just help with that. Uh, Callum Wilson, I'm an academic at the University of Tasmania in, in Tia. Callum, at the beginning of the year, you were you were successful in securing a grant from the Agricultural Development Fund. How much was that and what was that for? Um, okay, so this, this was a, an initiative from the Tasmanian State Government um, and, and they have this Ag Development Fund and, and they were funding a number of uh, projects to help, I guess, the, the long-term sustainability of, of agriculture in Tasmania. So, so these projects are up to half a million dollars um, and, and, and our project was, was close to that limit with co-investment from industry. So our major industry partner and from, from in-kind and financial contributions uh, was Simplot. Um, we've also had uh, a number of other potato growers, agronomists, um, who are also very important in terms of, of their, their in-kind input into the project. Audrey Leo, you're, you're from Simplot and normally you're working in Melbourne. That might explain a bit why you're over in Tasmania today. Correct. We are doing a lot of our uh, monitoring trial for our first season for this particular project. Um, so we are just un trying to understand what sort of data we actually need to collect and would be useful for this particular project. What are you monitoring at the moment and what are you looking out for? So at the moment, we have got a nine um, paddocks, selected paddocks that are at high risk, um, disease risk. And um, we are trying to understand a little bit more about the environmental conditions of this particular paddocks. We're trying to understand a little bit more about how the disease are sort of um, starting out, um, how do they develop, how do they infect, and what it actually will cause, um, what yield would actually cause in terms of these diseases. So two foliar uh, diseases, late blight and early blight, um, and also two soil-borne diseases as well, um, which are the main ones um, in Tasmania, the pink rot and also the powdery scab.
Now, I understand, I'm no potato expert here, but I understand from what you were saying before, folio diseases are quite easy to deal with. You, you can spray or not spray leaves. What about root, root diseases? They're, they're very tricky. I mean, I'm, from a folio perspective, we're, quite, we're lucky in Australia, actually, because our, our, our spray programs do work very well. I mean, that's, that's not the case in other parts of the world where, where more aggressive strains of the pathogen um, cause really significant problems. It doesn't mean that we can't do better, and, and that's what we hope the project will help. But the soilborne diseases, that, that, that's a real black box, um, literally. You know, the, the soil is, is a, a very complex system that we understand very, very poorly. Um, and soilborne diseases uh, are insidious. They sort of uh, develop out of sight, out of mind to some extent until we harvest the crop and realise what, what a mess we, we, we have. Um, Sounds a little bit evil. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it can be. I, I guess it's a natural system. I mean, all, all diseases are a, are a sum of, of three parts, really. You, you, have, you have the pathogen, you have this, this nasty bug, you have the host, the potato, and you have the environment they live in, and, and so that's, that's the soil. And, and trying to understand the dynamics between all of those factors mm. is quite complex but important. And I guess from like that dynamic perspective of how the pathogen develops and infects, um, it's very important for us to start understanding what are these extreme climate conditions that we've been having, especially for the last couple of years, right, with the La Nina and everything, is that how are they changing? How do they, what's the critical infection period um, that can make them becoming more aggressive and um, or causing more yield impact? Speaking of extreme weather, we've got a, a shortage of potatoes at the moment mm -hmm. thanks to last year's harvest and we're facing another one mm -hmm. in the coming year. Yeah. How important is this kind of research? It's very important for us. I mean, um, from Simplot perspective, I mean, we we, we are trying to get as much potato as possible from the land and it's becoming uh, an issue in terms of demand, um, sorry, the supply, that we don't necessarily get this, the required sanction that we've always looked for. And it's not going to get better in terms of the uh, demand as well from a customer or cons consumer perspective. They're always asking for more. And so, you know, we've got to be able to be smarter, I guess, in terms of how we farm um, to make sure that we can actually grow um, as much potatoes with the current condition or you know worsening conditions in the in the future. Now it's one thing to do all this lovely research and get great data but are, are you hopeful that you will be able to find solutions to things such as root diseases and how do you plan to get that out to farmers? Um, look good question and, and, and that's really one of the key reasons why we're working very, very closely with industry, and 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 not not just Simplot, but but the, but the, these the key growers and agronomists, and particularly the, the agronomists that will that will spread the word. Um, the 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 research and the understandings will be important, but but really it's it, it's also about understanding, or, or at least providing the knowledge for growers, um, so they can make their own decisions about what's going to be best. For them. And I think it's important to note that this is only just one key like to the puzzle, right? It's not uh, a whole solution like what Callum was mentioning as well. I'm really excited about the project. It, it is asking some questions uh, about systems that we know very little about and, and, and trying to understand these systems. Um, I mean, earlier in today we had a presentation about, about some of the history of Tasmanian potato uh, 
industry. And talking back back in the, you know, essentially from the start of the industry, how, how all these sawborne diseases, for example, were, were major problems back then. Well, they still are. Um, yes, we've made some incremental um, steps towards management and control. And obviously the growers are doing a much better job than they did back in the 1900s. Um, but we, we still are hamstrung somewhat by a lack of knowledge of, of the system and, 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 and what we can do about it. So, so this, is, this is part of that jigsaw of, of trying to better understand how these diseases work and how they operate. Callum Wilson from the Tasmanian Institute of Agriculture explaining to Meg Powell about a new research project into four types of potato diseases. You also heard from Simplot's Audrey Liu. Now, in recent weeks, you've heard about the stock losses that have been happening in Victoria and New South Wales due to flooding. It's not having an impact on large animals like sheep and cattle. It's, well, it's having impact on beekeepers. One has lost around 360 hives due to flooding on the Hay Plains. Echuca Moama beekeeper Bradley Jackson says it's wiped out 30% of his production. He's told Kelly Hollingworth it's the most challenging season he's faced. It's been hard watching when you can't get to them and the water is, um, keeps rising and you're trying to pull them out of the water and you can't. It's pretty heartbreaking watching your stock um, drown like that, I suppose you could say. This is on the Hay Plains. Um, that's the most significant part I've had out there and the flooding has been rising faster than I can get to them. Um, the rain, it's rained that much. The country's that wet the ground that you can't actually move some places. Can't drive trucks or loaders, even walking there. Are any more of the hives that you've got at risk, do you think? If it continues to rise in um, places, yeah, there'd be a lot more, yeah. A lot more hives um, of bees will be um, affected, yeah, most definitely. Are you looking at trying to relocate them or is it too late to do that? Uh, we've been trying to do that the best we can. We'll consistently keep at it until we can get them all out um, to higher ground. A lot of um, farmers, I will say, have been really, really helpful. Um, you know, close contact with me and that, just letting us know that it's coming better, it's higher, you know, the bank might bust, and actually helping us try to uh, get the stock out, So, which has been good. You were telling me earlier that you feel like you've been chased by floodwaters. So where did your first challenges with rising rivers and rainfall come from? Uh, from the Darling River. I um, started up there at the start of the season. As you know, the Darling River has been a flood. There's a lot of water up there there's been. And it just, as I moved away from it, and again, it rained and rained up there on the Darling River um, earlier in the season. And um, it's uh, trying to move them to get away from there, which we did. We lost no hives at all up there, luckily. Very, very lucky I was. And as we've come down, each river has just risen again and again and again due to the rain. So, um, yeah, that's just it's chased me from the Darling River, I suppose, to the Murray. Are these hives that you've lost insured? They are insured, but not for flood water. Are you likely to try and replace them? Yeah, I will try to replace them, um, which I will. Um, as the uh, water receives, we'll get what's uh, recoverable, um, which most probably nothing really will be out of them. Um, the boxes will be, uh, be uh, all waterlogged and cracked, so when they dry out. So I'll uh, yeah, most definitely try and um, rebuild them immediately as soon as the water goes. Now, Echuca, where you're based, was in strife last month because of flooding. Did you have any problems with your beehives there? Yeah, no, not in Echuca we didn't. No, uh, Echuca, Moema, no, no, none whatsoever. I made sure they're on high ground. Some water did get underneath the pallets of the hives, but not enough to uh, flood the hives out. That's beekeeper Bradley Jackson speaking with Kelly Hollingworth, lost 30% of his 
He's bees in the flooding. Still to come, a call for scouring wool in Australia, plus the livestock markets with Richard Bailey and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. Rescue workers are racing to find survivors still trapped in the debris of flattened houses from Monday's earthquake in Indonesia. An estimated 150 people are still missing. Southern Tasmanians are being asked to reconsider their need to go to hospital in the wake of a COVID-19 outbreak at the Royal Hobart Hospital. Health Department Secretary Catherine Morgan-Wick says the hospital has escalated to level two of its COVID management plan. Tasmania's Upper House has passed a bill to increase the number of House of Assembly members to 35. It means Tasmanians will elect seven members instead of five per House of Assembly division at the next state election. The WA Aboriginal Legal Service is calling for an immediate ban on the practice of using unmuzzled police dogs. The call comes after a 13-year-old boy was bitten by a dog last weekend and a Corruption and Crime Commission report which found a concerning over-representation of Aboriginal people in police dog incidents. And the Tasmanian government's released its draft 10-year salmon plan for public consultation. It includes support for the development of fish farming and waters further away from land and encouraged the relocation of existing fish farm leases further offshore but would not ban inshore fish farming. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Michael Conway joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Michael. G'day, Tony. Any rainfall of note anywhere? Uh, no, not really. The uh, We have had rainfall. I shouldn't say it's not of note. The, the rainfall of note is for the 24 hours to 9am, Mount Bob's in the Huon River catchment had 30 millimetres. Strathgordon out west had 21 millimetres. King William Creek also 21 and Cradle Valley received 20 millimetres of rain. Since 9am, there's been one rain, rec- significant rain uh, recorded in our gauges, and that was at uh, Phil's Ridge, Mount Picton. That's, and they had one millimetre, so hardly worth even mentioning, really. The, um, the notable thing with the weather, of course, is the winds that we had last night and yesterday. We reached a... We had a few records, so um, Grove had 85 kilometre, an 85-kilometre-hour gust. That's the highest on record in November. Also, Dens Point had 102 kilometre gust, uh, also a November record. Hobart, we we at 10:30 last night we had 102 kilometre hour wind gust, and that's the highest wind gust since uh, 2005 for Hobart. So it was quite a windy day uh, day and night through the south and and central parts of Tassie yesterday. Yeah, have those winds gone away now? Yes, that's right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The um, whether the squeeze between a high over the northern bight and a low off. Our southeast uh, has has moved in further into the Tasman Sea, and uh, it's it's just uh, the highest starting to send a little bit of a ridge over us, which will increase into Friday. So uh, this westerly flow that we're getting at the moment will continue into Friday before a cold front comes through. Uh, uh, sorry, a trough comes through on Saturday, a cold front comes through on Sunday. They're not particularly strong systems, but they will bring some rainfall, especially about the west and the north of the state, uh, but not, not looking like particularly heavy or like light to maybe moderate falls through those areas. Okay, and what sort of temperatures are we getting down to over the weekend? Uh, we're looking at... Um, uh, on the weekend, the the maximum temperatures will be around the low twenties for the warmest day, which will be Saturday, before the before the cold front comes through on Sunday. But it won't be getting too cold. It'll only be getting um, uh, it'll only be getting uh, to the high teens, yeah, mid to high, to 
high teens. So what am I saying? 15 to 17 degrees, sort of that sort of area on Sunday. So not too, not too um, cold at all. Okay. Last week of uh, spring. Next week, um, we're going to get some summery weather. <laughs> uh, well, it looks like it's sort of this westerly wind set in for um, for about a, you know 10 days or so. So. Uh, not 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 too summery. I, I wouldn't think at the moment, Tony. <laughs> okay, I yeah. can always ask, ask, and you shall receive. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, <laughs> you never know. Okay. Wish, I, wish I could say more. Yeah. Okay, warnings. What have we got? Yeah, there's uh, warnings have eased right off. So except for a few coastal waters warnings, well, uh, more than a few, but there's gale warnings for the lower east and southeast at the moment for west to southwesterly winds. Uh, stronger warnings for northern coastal waters from Stanley to St Helens, uh, and including Banks Strait and Franklin Sound, and also for southwest coastal waters. For tomorrow, there's stronger warning for northern waters from Stanley to St Helens Point, also including Banks Strait and Franklin Sound, and also for eastern and southern waters from Wineglass Bay around to Low Rocky Point. And the coastal waters and swell, Michael, what's happening there? Yeah, sure. So we have um, the... Winds today, west to southwesterlies at 25 to 35 knots, about the north, south and east, apart from the upper east and south, uh, 15 to 25 knots elsewhere. The winds tomorrow, west to southwesterlies at 20 to 30 knots, about the south, lower east and the north east of about Stanley, 15 to 25 knots elsewhere, though about variable winds about 10 to 15, about the upper east. The swells for today in the west and south, we've got west to southwesterly at five to six metres, so quite a big one, decaying to four metres in the evening. In the north, it's westerly at one to two metres. Uh, in the east, to south to southwesterly at two to four metres. Uh, but that's um, around the south Around the south of the east, there's a southwesterly at four to six metres offshore. That'll all be decaying to around four metres in the evening. The swells tomorrow uh, in the west, uh, west to southwest at three to four metres, uh, westerly around one metre in the north and south to southwesterly at one to two metres uh, in, in the east. And the Wave Rider boys, what's happening with them? Yeah, it's pretty high at Cape Sorrel, so we're just about 6.1 metres at Cape Sorrel at the moment. Mariah Island is uh, tad over two metres. Okay. Thank you for that, Michael. Thanks, Tony. Cheers. Michael Conway from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the Country Hour. We'll talk about processing wool in Australia for you very shortly. Also, we'll have a look at um, the beef, latest beef report from China and the US. And uh, livestock markets coming up with Richard Bailey. All that's still to come. The ABC Giving Tree for 2022 has been raised. As you've heard, cost of living expenses will make it tough for some people to show joy to loved ones this year. So it's even more important to help our fellow Tasmanians out. Donate online now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. This helps people doing it tough make their own choices on what they gift their loved ones. It's Lucy Braden from ABC Radio Hobart Drive. Please donate now at abc.net.au forward slash giving tree. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Talk about wool in just a moment, uh, but you may have heard in the news headlines there, the draft salmon industry plan has been released. Now, if you want to have a look at it and want to have a good read, it'll take you a little while. nre.tas.gov.au is the place to go. There will be nine community briefing sessions throughout December and January uh, from uh, most most of the major centres, including Hobart, Launceston on the West Coast, uh, down at Hewenville, down at Newbina, 
uh, up in the northwest and uh, on King and Flinders Island as well. So you'll see those dates of where they're going to have the community briefing sessions. And if you do want to make a public submission for the draft salmon industry plan, you can do that uh, right up until the 20th of January next year. So uh, have a read nre.tas.gov.au, the uh, salmon industry plan, the draft plan has now been released. Well, our $3.6 billion wool industry is looking at doing a lot more processing right here in Australia, maybe even up to 50%. At the moment, most Australian wool is shipped to China for processing, but Wool Producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes says the past few years have shown how vulnerable industry is, being so reliant on one country. We started to become aware of a number of risks to which our industry was exposed through being very reliant on exports for most of our product leaving the country in a greasy form. And they were risks that could come about from um, the likes of an emergency animal disease such such as foot and mouth disease or disruptions to market access either through the imposition of tariffs or quotas or non-tariff barriers. We were also talking a lot about freight costs in 2020 as well, Adam. Did the industry have to cope with a quite a, a big increase in the freight bill? Yeah, absolutely. And also one of the challenges that we faced as well, Joe, was the freight availability, where a lot of vessels were either becoming consolidated and dropping off some key export ports or um, shipping slots were shipping by up to six or eight weeks. And the flow-on impact has been that there's been a significant extension of the number of days to customer that we're seeing of Australian wool to get to um, further downstream consumers or to the point of retail. If we look at that supply chain now, what happens to our wool? We shear it, it goes into the bale, it goes onto a ship. Then what happens to it? Yeah, so currently, Joe, we've got processing capacity in Australia to scour or carbonise about 5% of the wool that we produce. The remainder of that wool is exported in a greasy form and around about 80% of the wool that we produce goes to China for scouring and carbonising and further on processing. The remainder goes to a mix of other markets, um, including primarily European markets and India. And that's where we saw some, I guess, risk mitigation in terms of our exposure to some of those trade barriers and freight disruptions um, through undertaking early stage processing here. So effectively, around about 50 to 60% of the wool that's in a pack that's exported in the greasy form isn't actually usable wool in the textile sense. It's made up of grease or lanolin, vegetable matter and soil. So there's some instant freight efficiencies if we can undertake scouring and carbonisation here. Probably just as well further to that, Joe, we've seen uh, two instances in the last three or four years where our wool-producing colleagues in South Africa have experienced a fairly significant disruption to their market access as a result of foot mouth disease incursions. Sure. So you're looking at potentially halving the amount that you'd be sending in freight, but also guaranteeing that you could still send it even if there was an FMD incursion in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. So the the scouring process actually mitigates the risk of some um, emergency animal diseases like foot and mouth disease. So Instantly, if we had capacity to process more, somewhere upwards of 5% of the wool that we currently produce, which is where we currently sit, then our risk exposure would reduce in a proportionate manner. This report looks at the numbers in a very much a preliminary setting. You need to do more, a deeper dive, if you like, into the numbers. But when you think about the cost of labour in Australia versus the cost of labour in a country like China, 
Does it stack up to do that early processing, that scouring and carding and combing in Australia when, when you can compare to the, the cost of doing that overseas? Yeah, absolutely, Joe. And probably one thing to make listeners aware of is that this report that we've recently released is part one of what was initially proposed to government as a two-stage process. And effectively, if we think of this as being the, the macroeconomic analysis, so we've looked at does it stack up commercially? Is it commercially competitive? And what are the benefits beyond just the direct benefits to the wool industry in terms of jobs creation and increase to GDP? As part of this analysis, we've actually looked at independently the wet early stage processes. So that's the scouring and carbonising, and then the dry early stage processes, so the carding and combing. And what we've found is that the higher labour costs in Australia are largely offset with the freight efficiencies that we achieve through, as we discussed before, exporting less um, undesirable or less usable product. But when we start to get onto the dry processing, we actually see that we're perhaps on direct commercial terms, not quite as competitive as some of those lower cost of labour markets. So perhaps what we're looking at doing in the next phase is pursuing what an altered supply chain could look where perhaps scouring and carbonising is decoupled from top making um, and top making is actually attached to spinning operations. Under this system, would you be looking at doing all of our wool in Australia or would you still be sending some unprocessed wool to China? What sort of volumes have you been looking at? So we looked at processing up to 50% of the wool that we produce as part of this feasibility study. And I guess part of the reason for that being that we looked at what happens with our wool when it's exported and actually 50% of the wool that we export to China is retained and consumed within the country through their vertically integrated models. And the remainder is processed to various stages along the wool supply chain and exported to third countries. So as a starting point, we looked at varying options from increasing a moderate increase to a, a high level increase up to 50% of the wool that we produce. And what impact that might have in terms of risk mitigation to our industry. Do you see any potential for wool that's been processed in Australia to attract some sort of price premium? I imagine it increases the traceability of that wool, that kind of thing. Is there opportunity there? We know that sustainability and supply chain transparency are of increasing importance to consumers of all agri-products and most certainly wool. So I think what we would be able to offer downstream consumers is assurance that the product they're receiving is 100% Australian wool. And we'd also be able to offer assurances around um, some of the credentials of perhaps um, some processing innovation that could be adopted using renewable energy, decreased water consumption and that sort of thing would all add to the story of sustainability that is Australian wool. Well, producers Australia General Manager Adam Dawes speaking there to Joe Prendergast about a recent report commissioned by the wool producers. It was done by Deloitte Access Economics looking into the viability of early stage processing of up to half the nation's clip right here in Australia. And you can read more about this story online at ABC Rural or on our ABC Rural Facebook page. Coming up, we'll have a look at the long-running drought which is affecting beef production in the US and also Richard Bailey with the latest on the livestock markets. ABC Listen. Earlier this year, Russian President Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. Matt Bevan's award-winning podcast, Russia If You're Listening, is back for a new season. But he encountered something he wasn't expecting. The President of Ukraine 
Volodymyr Zelensky. In-depth exploration of the invasion of Ukraine. We are fighting for our life, we are fighting for our freedom. The new season of Russia, if you're listening, available now on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Well, the United States is likely to be looking for more beef over the next three years as its own domestic production declines due to a long-running drought. Australia is among the major global beef exporters that could help fill the gap. Rabobank analyst Angus Gidley-Baird has told Michael Condon that international markets will struggle to meet the gap left by the US downturn. and That could lead to an increase in global beef prices as the US drought drags into a fourth year. Yeah, it is continues to be dry. Uh, it, it is it is odd. Speaking to our global colleagues at the moment, uh, we're talking La Nina here, which is obviously wet. Uh, over there, it's very dry. So, yeah, upwards in the order of about half of that US beef herd is in a dry or drought-affected area at the moment, which is leading to increased levels of, of liquidation of their cow herd. And that's uh, that dry has been dragging on for a number of years. It has, yes. Yeah, and we've seen the, the female cow or the female cow fuel uh, increase uh, basically it started ticking up sort of in 2019 it was it was reaching that stage where there are a large number of cattle in the system anyway but yeah it's really just continued to rise over the last couple of years and that means that they won't be able to supply their traditional markets that that will be the case yeah their production levels you know anticipate when when they get through this seasonal condition will will move into a rebuild phase and that will mean their production levels drop That'll mean that their export volumes to, you know, key competing markets like Australia, that Australia sends to, you know, Japan, South Korea and China will, will all drop as well. So that must be, well, uh, bad news for them, good news for us and probably good news for Brazil, Argentina. Yep. Yeah, good news for all the other exporters out there. Uh, I think, you know, probably favours Australia a little bit more than Brazil and Argentina, well, Brazil in particular. I mean, Brazil's got a, a very uh, a, a competitive price product in, in large volumes and it's really, you know, sort of dominating that China space at the moment. But from an Australian point of view, you know, less volume out of the US will, will probably have a real benefit for us into markets like Japan and South Korea. And the US as well. They'll, they'll need a lot of their own or a lot of, of beef themselves after they, they stop killing their cows. They'll be looking for a lot of lean trimmings, which Australia has traditionally been a big supplier of. So does that mean like more mincemeat or more steak? Yeah, more, more ground beef, mincemeat, yeah, that goes into their burger trade over there. They'll, uh, they'll be needing that lean trimmings to offset their fatter trim that comes out of their feedlot um, sector. And yeah, to, to create that that perfect burger. So we'd anticipate, you know, we, we're seeing female slaughter numbers in the US at the moment, similar to the levels we saw back in 11, 12. Uh, back in 13, 14, when they were going through the, the height of their rebuild, we saw those global beef prices lift by a huge number. The lean trimmings, global lean pr- trimmings price lifted by 50% in the space of about five months. So um, we're potentially staring down the barrel of something similar again, um, most likely towards the end into 23 possibly into 2024 so, if the season changes so good yeah good news for australian producers as long as they're not still hit by floods yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just doing some quick numbers on it, looking at it. I, you know, Australian cattle prices back in third were in fourteen. So between June fourteen and September two thousand and fourteen, 
and we'll all remember that it was very dry back then as well. Um, cattle prices, this is the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator, jumped 30% in the space of those months, despite the fact that we were in probably described as a drought condition ourselves, but that US market was just pulling all global beef prices up, um, which flowed through to our cattle prices. So, yeah, it, it's it's some positive news on the, on the horizon in terms of what could potentially play out over the next couple of years for the global beef market. And the floods, you know, subside and that turns to grass, I guess. So that has to be one way of looking at it. Definitely, definitely. Uh, it's, it's setting us up well for this year and I think it's part of the reason why we continue to see very strong cattle prices here in Australia. That producer, you know, is buoyed by the fact that he's got good soil moisture profiles, um, good pasture. Too good. Conditions. <laughs> Too good. Too much. I, I, I'd agree. I'd agree. Although the livestock guys are probably a little bit more fortunate than some of the cropping guys that yeah. can't get a tractor on there at the moment. But, um, yeah, yeah, generally it makes it difficult getting on to, to you know, muster stock and send them into to market, et cetera, no doubt. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it, it works in their favour and should hopefully set up a good 12 months. Yeah, looking longer term, it's it's better. Now, the other thing is a good time for us to have better trade relations with China by the looks of things. Yeah, hopefully. Cross our fingers. I mean, a number of plants have still not actually got their export licence back to China after being shut out in 2020. So hopefully better trade relationships might lead to those being re-established again, which would, would be great. You know, anything that can, can afford greater trade access into you know China being the biggest global beef importer in the world would be a good thing. Well, the analysts are saying it's not going to be a like it's not going to, they're not going to be opening the floodgates, but it'll be a slow trickle back to sort of normality. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, I mean, we we're not really in a position to go and kill a whole lot more cattle and send a whole lot more beef to China anyway. Um, we've got limited livestock numbers on the ground. We've got challenges with workforce and and labour availability. We've got increasing costs from a processing point of view. We're not we're not selling the cheapest beef in the world, um, so. Yeah, you wouldn't imagine it'll open the floodgates, but it does provide longer term. If we've got that access, we'll be able to to send volumes into that market as our numbers and cattle numbers in, in Australia increase, which will be good. Yeah, there's always a sting in the tail, isn't there? Rubber Banks, Angus Gidley Baird, talking there to Michael Condon about the drought affecting the US beef production. And the US is likely to be looking for more beef over the next three years as its own domestic production declines because of that long-running drought going into its fourth year now. Okay, we've uh, talked about US beef and the possibility of China uh, wanting more Australian beef. Well, let's head out to the livestock market and find out what the prices are doing and say good day to Richard Bailey. How are you, Richard? Going well, Tony. And power any yesterday. How was it? Yeah, a few more cattle around, better line-up of cattle, uh, 100 trade and grown cattle, and a better line-up of yearlings, which gave people a bit more opportunity to, to buy some better types of cattle. This market was uh, pretty strong. Uh, yearling steers anywhere from 410 up to 482 cents, and yearling heifers 390 to 462. Um, both local butchers and restockers in on those uh, on those cattle. Very few grown steers, a few grown heifers made 362 to 374. About half the yard were cows. This market was just a shade cheaper than last week's very strong market. There was a very good lineup of cows yesterday. Uh, the best cows made 330 to 348 cents and leaner 322 to 332 cents. Now, there were two or three lines of pregnancy tested cows there and they made 372 up to 382 cents a kilo. 
2280 to 2590 dollars a head the best of those other heavy cows may they topped over three thousand dollars a cow so um you know the really big heavy cows are, are selling exceptionally well only a couple of bulls okay uh, and uh, there's a sale coming up Yep, tomorrow. Now, this these numbers have changed dramatically. Last week, we talked about having sort of fourteen or fifteen hundred. Um, it looks like we'll have it. We'll have two thousand, I'd say, or nineteen hundred, two thousand cattle. So, it'll be an excellent time for people who want want things to eat their grass to get in and uh, buy cattle. Um, there'll be some cattle there for everyone I reckon there'll be a few ins and outs and but there will look to me like there'll be some good lines of cattle as well so starting at 11 o'clock okay and uh, the weather might be kind too so we might see a lot of people there yeah I, I mean you would think that uh, an opportunity like this uh, you'd want to if you need cattle you'd want to be thinking about getting in about now I just don't know how many will be in the December sale hard to tell at this stage but um, certainly yesterday the, the, a lot of the coats of the cattle are cleaning up so we're starting to although it's been a bit cold in places we're starting to get a few cattle that are, are you know in, in pretty good shape so I reckon that'll continue on tomorrow okay so we do have one more before Christmas yeah, we will have. I can't tell you exactly when it is. I imagine it will be the second week, I would reckon, but yeah. um, not sure. Okay, because we're only a month away from Christmas now. We Gosh, are. It's yeah. quick, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, lamb and sheep, what's happening there? Okay, smaller numbers of both lambs and sheep. Um, lamb market was a little bit stronger. A um, couple of extras in there just trying to fill a couple of, top up some loads. The best of the the new season's lambs made $190 to $210 a head. Uh, some of them were pretty heavy. Then you had some tradie weight lambs down to 134 to $148. Uh, restockers stepped in on the lighter lambs and they paid $112 to $140 for lambs to go back to the paddock. In the old lamb section, it was, you know, obviously at this time of the year, it's going to be pretty mixed. But the better types of lambs, and there weren't any very heavy lambs, but the better types of tradie weight lambs, but anywhere from 134 to $172. And then your light trades, anywhere from 80 to $120. Most of those will probably go to the Middle East trade, I should think. There were quite a lot of tutus in the yard yesterday. They sold, I thought, for what they were, I thought they sold pretty well. But we're once again seeing a situation where the number, Numbers are um, uh, numbers of those sort of sheep are, are growing because they're cutting their teeth. 577 mutton, uh, which is uh, almost 200 less than last week. This market's struggling a bit. It, it's uh, nationwide. The, the mutton market is just struggling. Um, the best of the extra heavy sheep made 100 and up to 120 dollars, and then heavy sheep made 108 to 124. Medium weights 104 to 118 and light 48 to $60 a head they were to kill. There were some very light sheep that went back to the paddock at 20 to $40 a head. Um, there's a market for those, and they, have, you know, they, they, they need a bit of uh, TLC, but uh, there is a market for them. Okay, Richard, we'll hear from you on Friday. We will, Tony. Yeah, Richard Bailey back on Friday. He'll check the mainland markets when he does return all the details from those big sales on the mainland.
Now, don't forget to visit our ABC Rural online page and also our ABC Rural Facebook page. Uh, Plenty of great rural stories there, and you can make some uh, comments, if you like, on the uh, Rural Facebook page. That is our program for this Wednesday. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.